we have three passages from Acts today. So the first passage is from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 47. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Our next reading is from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and, God, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And finally, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Shall we pray before Mike comes to speak to us? Dear Lord, you speak to us through your word, and we ask you that as Mike opens this to us, you would be pleased 
to talk to us and to meet us at the place of our need. Lord, we pray for Mike that you would give him your words and help him as he speaks to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Please do keep your Bibles open there. Uh, we'll start in Acts chapter 2, which was the reading on uh, page 1094. And it's brilliant to meet the food bank at long last. Where are you? I think I saw one of you on Jeremy Kyle. That's right. You handled him really well, I have to say. It was great. Wonderful. We've been so excited about partnering with you for this time, and uh, you're here at last. So God bless you. Uh, in your ministry and pray that God will bless you as you're here with us today. Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm Mike, I'm one of the ministers here and we're doing a series at the moment uh, called Grace in the City. You can see there on the slide, a, a grace, our name of our church and the cityscape of Manchester. What does it mean to be our church in the city? We're looking at this for six weeks, uh, we're into the third one, and we're looking at six key values Six things that make up our vision of what we want to be. We've thought about worship. God calls us to be worshippers. The whole point of life is to worship God. That means to serve him, to adore him, to praise him. And we've thought about that and how uh, we can be true worshippers that God is seeking. We then thought about the gospel, the good news, the great news report about Jesus Christ. A news report that states, explains his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and what that means for all of life and for all of history and how that's really at the center because it, it's what turns us into worshippers. And then it pushes us out on mission and it forms us into a community. And we're also going to think in later weeks about the call for, of the church to justice, to social justice, as we've been thinking today about the food bank. It's part of that whole fabric. And finally about how we relate to our city. We're using this little diagram which shows that the message of Jesus, the good news, the gospel, is at the center because it's what empowers and drives everything else. So it's what forms us into people who can worship God truly. It pulls us together in community and it propels us and mobilizes us to reach out beyond each other, to reach out to people who don't know Jesus so that they too can experience his life-giving and transforming power and grace. The power and importance of true community is what we're thinking about today. And it was underlined for me this week. I met a leader from another church uh, somewhere else in the north of England. She told me about a young man who has wandered into their church in recent times. He's in his early 20s and he has significant special needs. He has a condition that affects him cognitively and socially. He Practically, he just can't make friends. He tends to push people away. And now in his early 20s, this man's parents decided that the best thing for him would be if he moved out of home uh, to become more independent. So they asked him to move out. So by the time he was connected with the church, he was disconnected from nearly everyone else. He was deeply isolated and lonely. He would sit alone in his flat playing computer games on his own for hours and hours. He would reach out to people, but always end up pushing them away and not really understand why. Yet he was painfully aware of his need to be accepted and loved. And the first thing he found when he went to their church was a true home. And then 
he found Jesus Christ. And now some young men from that church are inviting him into a room in a shared house so that he doesn't have to live alone. Community. It's about far more than just friendship. Community is far richer than spending time with people like you or even family. Community can achieve so much more than individuals can on their own. And community is a shop window displaying the good news of Jesus Christ. Community is a living demonstration of what the gospel means. These are all reasons why we are so passionate about community here at Grace Church. And I want to remind you of it and call us again to it today. This is especially important, I think, in Manchester. This most wonderfully community-minded of cities. To announce the gospel here and to fail to demonstrate its reality with authentic community and real relationships is a bit like trying to sell a product and then actually not show it to anyone. But how is it that the gospel produces community? We've thought in the past about the nature of our God. He's a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God himself is his own community. So we as his people are being drawn into sharing and enjoying his life. So when God calls human beings, he always forms them into a people. And those who've been formed like that always reflect the nature of the God who called them. They themselves are a community. The good news restores us to being the kind of people we were meant to be. It restores us to true humanity and that binds us together. It tears down all the dividing walls that separate people. Walls of ethnic distinctions, walls of social class, walls of educational background, walls of economic profile. All those things, instead of basing your existence on that, you start to base your life on knowing Jesus Christ and becoming a lover of God. And that then always means becoming a lover of other people. The gospel calls us to belong to God. And then we find that we belong to one another. So we need to know what it looks like and what it means to be in a gospel-formed community here. A gospel community. What does it look like? How is it similar to other kinds of communities? How is it radically different? Now, the message of the good news means that such community will be completely inclusive. And yet, it will also have high holy standards. The message of the good news brings us into a community that has leadership, but everyone is equal. The message of the good news means that we have unity now with people drawn from across a vast range of backgrounds because that unity is based on something that transcends all normal human divisions. It will be far more diverse and more unified than any club. I had a sad conversation a few years ago with an old friend who had given up on church and had decided instead to put his kids into a rugby club. Rugby club played on Sundays, so they gradually dropped out of church. And he said these very sad words to me. You know, we found more real community at the rugby club than we ever experienced at church. I thought about that a lot. I didn't say anything at the time. But much later on I thought, of course you found great community there. It's full of people like you. But it has no room for the social outsiders 
and no room for people who aren't into rugby. The Church of Jesus Christ allows for the greatest cohesion because in it there is found true grace, real forgiveness and repentance and a willingness to change. There's no better place to see all of this in action than the book of Acts. We've read three passages from it today, three snapshots of community. We're going to spend our time there. The great French reformer, John Calvin, said these marvelous words about Acts chapter 2. Do we seek the church of Christ? You want to know what it looks like? The picture of it is here painted to the life. as a life portrait. We must endeavor to observe this order. If we wish to be truly a judge, to be the church before God, and not only to make a boast in the empty name of it before men. Do we want to know what the church really looks like? Do we want to be a real church? We'll find it here in Acts chapter 2. Now I have an old, um, old-fashioned photograph album at home. Do you remember those things? When you used to actually get the photos back from the developer and they put them in a little album, stick them in. I've got this photo album and it's, it's, a, it's a trip that I took to Cambodia. And seeing any one of those pictures brings back a whole host of memories that clustered around it. So what we're thinking about today is three snapshots of the early church, the very first church in Jerusalem and what their life was like. And in each of these three photos we're going to see different things under two headings today. Two headings, hear that? Not a three-point sermon. Some people are in shock. The beauty of community and the reality of community. Firstly, the beauty of community. Turn with me again to Acts chapter 2. Notice how community forms. We we read in Acts chapter 2 the very first Christian sermon, and at the end of it, the apostle which means a messenger or a sent one. The Apostle Peter, who's kind of the lead guy in the apostles, he's preaching to this huge crowd and he says, "Uh, I've got to tell you, God has made this Jesus, verse 36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when they hear this, they are cut to the heart. It goes right in deep. And they say to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent means turn your life around and turn to God and put the past behind you. Repent and be baptized as an expression of your new life, that you're coming into a new community, you're being washed of all the previous sins, you're going from death to life. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gives them this promise and he pleads with them, save yourselves and those, verse 41, who accepted his message were baptized, and of 3,000 were added to their numbers that day. That was quite an increase. They had about 120 at the start of the chapter. Now they've got 3,120. Good going. So notice here, the first church is a mega church. But it's also a church made up of many, many household communities. We read on, uh, looking in verse... 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, big group. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So there's a megachurch meeting in the temple courts and loads and loads of little households eating together every day in their homes and sharing their newfound faith in Jesus. Now this says something to us, I think, about our preference for one church size 
over another. Some people really prefer the intimacy and the warmth of the small church. And there's a lot to be said for it. Others prefer the, the social mix and the range of programs that can be put on and the credibility of a large church. Does the Bible have a preference? No. In fact, the first Christian church was very large and very small. A huge gathering of people, but many, many small cells making it up in households. So some people believe that when it comes to church, small is beautiful, and others believe that big is beautiful. But what we see here is that the thing that makes a church community beautiful is not its size, but its quality of community. Its quality of community. Community itself is beautiful when it's properly expressed. And it was beautiful here. It says, uh, because the first church community was devoted, absolutely devoted, heart and soul, to certain things. Have a look at the first four of them here in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. I've put the word the in there. I'll explain why in a minute. They devoted themselves to these things. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. These four things are the staple diet of the early Christian church. They're the essentials. Without them, the church is weak and sickly. But with them, you have a diet that will make you vigorous and healthy. What are they? The apostles' teaching. The first church was not focused on mystical experiences. It was a learning church. It was a studying church. They listened hard to the apostles' teaching. They thought about it. And they devoted themselves to understand it and apply it. So what is this teaching? We have it recorded for us here in the New Testament. The apostles taught about Jesus Christ, his life and his words and his deeds. And then they applied it to what that meant for the whole of our existence. We have it here in this New Testament. And as we open the New Testament and read this teaching, which has been recorded for us, we find that the apostles' teaching is full of the Old Testament. It's full of it. Echoes and quotes and allusions. So the apostles' teaching includes the whole of the Old Testament. The 39 books that the Jews revered as their Bible in the Hebrew language for the most part. So true church community has a passionate emphasis on learning and applying the Bible. Of being people who are in the word together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then to fellowship. Now this word means a close, intimate sharing. That kind of relationship. It's sometimes a word that's used of marriage in the Bible. Fellowship with one another. In our culture, it's associated with friendship. But in the model church, the first church there, it wasn't limited just to people who were like me, which is often what friendship is about. It's a close relationship of sharing with everyone who loves Jesus. It's unpacked there in verse 44. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. That's what fellowship looks like. It's a deep sharing of who you are and of what you've got. It's challenging. This is why we expect Grace Church members and friends to spend time together, share their lives. Not to have high fences surrounding the home and high fences all around your diary, but to be together and to have all things in common. Thirdly, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now this means eating a meal together. 
You see it unpacked there in verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now why is sharing a meal so important? Why is sharing a meal so important? Because there is nothing like it to deepen relationships. If a church meets together on Sunday, sings some songs, hears a sermon, says some prayers, then goes home and doesn't meet again until the following Sunday, that can only take a church community so far. Its life is impoverished. But if we commit to meeting together over food during the working week, things start to look very different. Now you find that Christianity is not just for Sunday, but for the whole of life. Now you find that the bonds between us are strengthened and rich, like strong tendons and muscles holding the skeleton together. If you've shared food with somebody, it's much harder to keep keep nursing a grudge against them. It gives a certain reality and depth and, and richness to our relationships. So this is why on our Sunday time together, we have meals. We try and bracket our time with meals. We start with a light breakfast, and we have lunch usually organized at lunchtime. We want to take these opportunities to deepen and enrich our community. This is why those of you who've been around a while will know this mantra, we always eat together. We always eat together. Because there's a direct link between breaking bread and experiencing real community. Take away the breaking of bread, and we will all be the poorer. Now, I know that our constant emphasis on lunches, eating together in life groups, bringing and sharing food, uh, adds a certain dynamic that's quite inconvenient, especially for those of us who are from Western individualistic cultures. So please understand the significance of what we do when we eat together as a church. We are building the community life of Jesus' church. Now, we're not legalistic about this. No one's keeping account of how many calories you eat at Grace Church. Although in some of our cases, we've started to do that. You're free, but we hope that you'll use your freedom to be devoted to the breaking of bread. Fourthly, they were devoted to the prayers. Now, all prayer is important, isn't it? But this is talking about prayer together. In the original language, it has the word the, the prayers. And that means this is the formal meeting of the church where people pray. As we've had, um, our friends have already prayed. A number of people have prayed together today, and we all joined with them. That's the prayers. A true church community must be a praying church. It's a high privilege to speak to the Father together. Jesus commands us to pray And nothing of any spiritual depth will happen without prayer. And of course, you can't be devoted to the prayers if you're not here. If you're not regularly at gathered worship. So let me ask, is Sunday morning at church an option? Or is it essential in your diary? Is it easily dislodged by weekends away, leisure activities, and other life choices. If it is, then what does that say about your devotion to God's people? You know, you can be a church member, you can be a person that knows their Bible very well, and not really be committed to community at all. How often do you miss Sunday? And who's the loser? 
There are four aspects of the model church. They're devoted to those things. Now there's a fifth thing here. It's not clearly stated, but it is everywhere. They were devoted to sharing Jesus. Look with me at verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Every day, people were being saved. They were coming in, hearing the message, and responding in faith, and joining the community. It must mean that these early Christians were speaking often about Jesus, about what he'd done for them, about what he meant to them. It wasn't just that the experts spoke, you know, the preachers, the ones with the microphone. It was that everyone did. Those early Christians are very interesting. They spent a lot of time together, didn't they? And yet, non-Christian people were joining their number every single day. Fascinating. You might think that if Christians are spending a lot of time together, they're being exclusive and they won't have time for non-believing people. Surely they're in a religious ghetto. But it's not the case here. The opposite is true. It's as if the more time they spend with each other in deep community, the more people get saved. How can that be the case? It must be that this Christian community was open. It was on display. It was open to view. It wasn't airtight. It wasn't a ghetto. It had lots of ways and routes in for non-believing people to see, to ask questions, to engage with it. That's the only way we can understand this. If the early Christians met in a home... They didn't shut the door and whisper about Jesus. The door was open. Non-Christian people were able to come in. These early Christians had some friends around for dinner. There were Christian friends there and non-Christian friends, not going out in two separate parties all the time. The early Christians had a movie night, a game of football, a games night, went to the pub, had people over for coffee. They always did it inviting all of their friends. You see the dynamic here? People saw the life of their community, they saw the gospel in action, and they wanted to join it. Acts chapter 4 adds a sixth and final dimension. I'll bring these up so, just for, so you can remember them. Devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, sharing Jesus. And Acts chapter 4, turnover, shows that they were devoted to one another. Now this is really radical. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Wow. There was no needy person there. Nobody was hard up. If someone was in need, someone else who had some money or some possessions sold them and gave it to them. There was a real sense of church being family. And providing for each other. Not what's mine is mine and I'm so sorry that you're, you're having troubles. Bound together. Devoted to one another. It's a place of social justice. A place of social healing. A place of great provision. The poor come in and are blessed. It's bound together. They share their lives. They share their Lord. They share their stuff. And they were absolutely devoted to these six things. And it formed a beautiful, beautiful community. The church was dynamic. It grew every day, it says. And uh, God was present with them. Everybody knew him. Now, do you want to be part of a church like that? Do you? Do you want to be part of a church like that? A vibrant church, growing 
dynamic, a place of real community. Church that sees people come to faith in Jesus, be baptized, see their lives changed. I know many of you do. And that's why we need to make sure we're devoted to the right things. As life gets busy with every passing year, the important things get crowded out by the tyranny of the urgent or the tyranny of the distracting. So let us commit this morning, Grace Church, members and friends, let us commit to be devoted to Christ's church, to these six things. But there's something else here. There's another challenge to this kind of community that we need to be honest about. As you go on in the Christian life, you experience more disappointment. Uh, People let you down. Maybe churches have let you down. Maybe this church has let you down. It's easy to get cynical, get jaded, get tired of it, get disillusioned. Some people reach the point where they say, you know what, church has failed me. I'm done with church. And when you hear about their experiences, you can't help but be sympathetic. But does it have to be like that? Acts is realistic. Having shown us this ideal model church, it then shows us the challenge of community. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6, our our last passage, as we think about the challenge of being in community in the real world. Acts chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, so it's growing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. You see, it's a new kind of community. Yeah, it's beautiful. But it's not heaven on earth. It has real problems and real tensions. So we see here that church growth brings problems and tensions as well as opportunities. After all of the buzz and all the glory days of chapter 2, what do we expect would happen? The, The writer Luke here tells us the story as it is. As soon as the church starts to motor... It hits some very choppy waters, and it's a a perfect storm that blows up that almost threatens to capsize it. One writer called John Stott has said that Acts chapter 3 to 6 is Satan's counterattack. Satan is not very happy about the church, so he goes after it. In the first case, the Jewish authorities try to coerce the church. In the second case, a lying couple try to corrupt the church. And here in the third case, squabbling widows distract the church, Acts chapter 6, just as they're increasing in number, just as things are going well, problems come. Growth brings problems as well as opportunities. We should expect it. Now, what kind of problem is this? Practically, it's that some, there are different kinds of ethnic and cultural groups in the church, and they're sharing a meal. Every day they have food distributed, and we know there's a lot of them. Some of them are Hellenists, which means they're Greek-speaking, that's their first language, and they're more at home in the Greek culture. But the others are called Hebraic, which means their first language is Hebrew, and they're more at home in the Hebrew Jewish culture. All of them are together in the same church, but bringing them together, that is a social challenge. You're talking about people who are massively divided. It would be like bringing together Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland in a church. And praise God, there are churches like this. People who have very, very different backgrounds. 
Very, very different ways of doing things. Even different ways of eating. And different ways of expressing themselves. Does this sound familiar? Northerners and Southerners in the same church. Whoa. Asians and Europeans and Africans all in the same church. Whoa. Isn't that exciting? Doesn't it bring challenges? Especially with food, for some reason. Here's how the problem pans out. The Hellenists, the Greek-speaking ones, they notice that their widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. And so they start to moan. They start to complain. They start to grumble. The word means muttering in a low tone of voice. Have you seen the food over there? I didn't get any. Talk to them. It's grumbling. Same word for grumbling that's used of the Israelites complaining in the wilderness. You know what it's like when we were back in Egypt? We had loads of food there. Melons, garlic, cucumbers, leeks, and the meat. Oh, Egyptian barbecue. Can't we go back? It's potentially explosive. We know the power of food, don't we? Been thinking about the food bank today. Compassion. There's nothing more emotive than people, women and children, going without food. These are the widows. They haven't got any food. Some of them haven't eaten for three days. And those ones are being overlooked in the church. Oh, I see. The Greek-speaking ones haven't got any food. Again. You know, body language. It looks a lot like institutional racism. Now, this is potentially disastrous for the young church, isn't it? It could rip the heart out of it. So what do the church leaders do? What do you expect church leaders to do? Well, they'll go and pray about it. Maybe they'll prepare a course of Bible studies and teach about sharing. Maybe they'll go off for a day. Or maybe they'll come and preach a strong sermon against grumbling. Hit them hard. Actually, they don't do any of those things. Look at what they do. Chapter 6, verse 2. So the twelve, these are the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. So they choose these guys. They present them to the the apostles. They pray. They lay their hands on them. They commit the work to them, and they hand on the responsibility. Now, that's very interesting. They basically created a management solution. I'm not saying they didn't pray about it, but they did something. And what they did was to empower others in the church to take more responsibility They shared the work, and this is a lot of work, isn't it? Trying to organize food rotors daily for hundreds of people, some of whom are in great need. All the distribution of that. This is leadership. This isn't some kind of second-tier thing. We'll do the really important stuff with the Bibles. You go and wait on the tables. No, no, this is a significant thing that could destroy the church, but instead of trying to control it all themselves, these leaders give power away. They give responsibility away. They give authority away to these seven men who have to be really high caliber. They have to be full of the Holy Spirit. They have to be very wise. In fact, the life and the the unity of the church is in their hands. And the apostles hand it on to them. Say, guys, over to you. We can't do this, and nor should we. We've all got different roles in the church. Now, what can we take from this very interesting window? 
this third snapshot in the photograph album. I think we can expect that a growing church will have problems. That is a tremendously encouraging thought to me. And it should be to you too. We should have problems. We need to see this because the minute we spend, start spending quality time together as a community, what's going to happen? Sinners rubbing together and causing all the sparks of conflicting relationships, which can blaze into a fire if we're not careful. So if we are experiencing some problems at Grace Church, it's natural and normal. It's not a sign that it's all going pear-shaped. The writer Ray Evans, who spoke here a year or two back, has talked a lot about different dynamics in different sized churches. He talks about lines of communication. So if um, Martin and Lakey and I are having a three-way conversation, there are three of us, there are in fact six lines of communication. I've got one line to you and one line to you. You've got a line to him and a line to me. And you've got a line to him and a line to me. We've got six possible lines of communication between three people. So three people have six lines of communication. Okay, what about 50 people? 50 people have 2,450 lines of communication. We now have 50 children in this church. Goodness knows how many lines of communication in between them. A church of 100 people has 9,900 lines of communication. A church of 200, though, has 39,800. Because the more you are, it multiplies exponentially. And friends, we're now approaching 200 people in our church community, which means there are nearly 40,000 lines of communication. Do you expect that sometimes our communication isn't great? Although sometimes we might not say it right. Or that I didn't hear that and I didn't know about it. How do we cope with that? Only with great love, affection and grace for one another. Communications. And sometimes the only way to deal with problems is a management solution. Get some godly people onto it. Face up to the problems. Not live in denial because we don't like confrontation. Not hide from the problems and cover them up. Not, not pretend that everything's all right. But face them graciously. And find an effective solution together and move on together. You see, the challenge of our church is that we need each other. We need to be a community, but we also need servant leaders who take stuff on and organize community life. So a little shout out here. For our current state of size and, and, and complexity as a church, I think we need a few more leaders we need a few more leaders to share the work out. So will you prayerfully consider if you could be one of them? And come and speak to me, or Rich, or Emily, and see where we can employ your gifts. It was a model church. It had a beautiful community. It was also a real church. It faced the challenges that growth brought problems, but that leadership found solutions. The beauty of community the challenge of community. So let me finish with a call to community. You knew there had to be a third point, didn't you? <laughs> Let's be honest. This doesn't come naturally, especially to us Westerners. Here are some challenges of gospel community. The challenge of time. I'm really busy, you know. 
I've got a job to do and a family to look after. The challenge of money. Being generous actually costs money, and I owned it myself, and I quite like to spend it on myself. The challenge of energy. I just feel tired all the time. The challenge of inconvenience. Wouldn't it be easy if we just had a Bible study for adults, and there were no kids, and no food, and we just met for an hour and a half and did the Bible study and went home? Yeah, it would be easier. The challenge of openness. Maybe you're a private person. You don't like opening and sharing. The challenge of tolerance. These aren't the people I would choose to spend my life with. The challenge is forgiveness. They hurt me. That person really offended me. I thought what they said wasn't fair. The challenge of hospitality. You know, I spent all this time making my home lovely, and the church group came around, and now half of my teaspoons have gone, (laughs) and my best plates got chipped. I went upstairs once. We had a community group in our house. It grew to 35 adults and 12 children. I'm an introvert. Praise God. Thank you. I'm an introvert. I went upstairs once. I went upstairs to the loo just to get a bit of a breather. And I found a child not related to me who had gone to the toilet, number twos, and missed the seat. I was trying to clean it off the carpet. So I just went, I'll go and get your parents. Just went back downstairs to the community. It's so inconvenient. The challenge of self. Oh, I've got to deny myself I'm going to be involved in this. And the challenge of challenge. People tell me things I don't want to hear. It turns out I'm not perfect. (laughs) Sometimes I have to say sorry. You're right. Wow. There's some challenges, aren't there? So is it worth it? Is it worth it? To be committed to community. The Bible stubbornly insists that it is. From start to finish, God is building community. The whole Bible is about God creating a people for himself and calling them to be his very own. In the New Testament, whenever the gospel comes, people respond. They are formed into community. It draws them together. They belong to one another. And there's a little word in the Greek language, in the New Testament, that's just one little word. The word is alelon. Alelon. And this word is translated in English, one another. One another. And so, because I'm a bit of a nerd, I did a word study on this yesterday. And I found that alelon appears 94 times in the New Testament. Here are just a few of them. Jesus said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. He said, I give you a new commandment, to love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Everyone will know by this that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Paul says to the Romans, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members who belong to one another. Be devoted to one another with mutual love, showing eagerness to honor each other. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Therefore, we must not pass judgment on one another, but rather determine never to place an obstacle or a trap before a brother or sister. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for building up one another. Receive one another then, just as Christ Jesus received you for the glory of God. 
But I myself am fully convinced about you, brothers and sisters. You yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. Corinthians, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Galatians, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your flesh. But through love, serve one another. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, being jealous of one another. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Therefore, having laid aside falsehood, each of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Ephesians, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Don't lie to one another. You've put off the old self. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Always pursue what is good for one another. And finally, this is the gospel message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. It does a lot with one little word. Do you get the memo? We belong to one another. But if we are to pursue this kind of community, we will need to have a strong motivation, won't we? To overcome our natural tendencies and our sinful hearts. Where will we find such motivation? In the gospel itself. You know Jesus Christ. He gave up his home. He gave up his community with the Father and the Holy Spirit so that you could find one. He embraced the marginalized and the poor and the offensive and the outsiders. And he called them his family. He exceeded all traditional bonds of blood, culture, family and nationality to create the multinational, multicolored church of Jesus Christ. He bought you with his own blood. He loves you. And every single one who belongs to him is an unspeakably precious person because he bought them with his own blood. And his glory, he says, is most fully displayed to the watching world by the inexplicable love of Christian people for one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love each other. You can't do that if you only see each other on Sunday morning. It can't mean that we simply love our friends and people like me. Even the pagans do that. It can't mean that you love people only when you get something in return. You know, you measure, measure the estimated relationship potential at the start of a conversation. Everybody does that. It must mean that you love inexplicably those who are not like you, and those whom you gain nothing from, and love them deeply from the heart. Nobody does that. Nobody does that, except the church of Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches that when we do that, the world will sit up and notice, and watch, and want to find out why. See their love for one another, the early pagans said, why do they love each other so much? The beauty of community, being devoted to those six things, 
The reality of community, challenges that come with growth and communications and just being sinners together and the call to community. Here at Grace Church, we have a little booklet called The Journey Home. We talk about our membership, not just being members, but being on a journey together to our heavenly home. And in that booklet, we call to commitment by asking people to be available, to be generous, and to be other-centered. Because with that kind of commitment, we will grow in Christ into the fullness of what he wants for us. We will find our lives and our families enriched in countless ways. And with this kind of commitment, we will reach this great city for Jesus. Will will you pray? Think for a few moments here about how that might impact you this week. And then I'll pray for us all. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, as we've thought together today just for a short while about community, about the challenge of your word to live those open, committed, humble, loving and transparent lives. Perhaps we've been cut to the heart in some way, and that's good. We thank you that you're a God who is never failing in mercy and love, and that if you cut us to the heart, it's only to draw us back to deeper relationship with you and to form us into a people for your very own. Hear our prayers of repentance. Hear our prayers of recommitment. Send us that gift of the Holy Spirit, we pray, to empower us for our lives, for our worship, for our witness. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill this great city with communities of light and help us to be one such community. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.